You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. I want to start with a verse. I want this to be the verse that kind of captures our attention as we move into this topic. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let me pray as we think about that. Father, we thank you for this time that we've set aside in service to hear from you. Lord, we know that as we read your word, we are directly hearing from you. As we preach the word, we ought to be directly hearing from you. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that you will speak this morning. I understand my limitations, human limitations, uh, but I also understand that you have no limitations. And uh, your desire is for us to know your will about all the things that you've put in your word. And so this morning, we pray for the next 45 minutes or so, you will indeed teach us Enlighten us, Lord. Put us in a place where we can better serve you as re- in, in respect to giving. And we'll love you, Lord, all the more for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, with that particular verse, he is encouraging the Ephesian believers <clears throat> to be like God. To be like God. Now, to be like God, not in the sense that God is, so that we have the, the, the scope of his attributes, but to be like God in the sense of resembling him. The Greek word for uh, that imitators, the Greek word that Paul uses for imitators is the word mimites. And mimites, from which we get mimic, means to mimic. And you could see it in like a comical sense where kids... Uh, irritate each other by copying and mimicking one another's speech or or actions, right? Excuse me. But that's not the sense here. The sense here is not comical at all. It is very honoring that we should be the people on earth who resemble God. And so to resemble God is really to mimic him in terms of his acts of grace, his acts of mercy, his acts of love, his acts of being faithful to us, serving us, God above, doing all those things for us. And so in mimicking him relative to this subject, perhaps the greatest way in which we show that we're connected to the Lord, that we love him, that we appreciate him, that he has put his mark on us is when we resemble him and especially in the area of giving. The Ephesians verse says that Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Giving is what the Lord is all about. It's a very important topic. And I know that there are many, many uh, interpretations ideas, opinions about what giving is. And in 45 minutes this week and 45 minutes next week, it's not my aim to exhaust the topic. But 
it is my aim to bring truth, to lay it out there so that you, in your personal studies, you have a framework, if you will, if you don't have one already. So my intent, then, is to handle this topic, which I've entitled Theology of Giving, handle it in a way that honors God so that we can experience what the Lord would have us experience through giving. It's going to be a lot of knowledge and then some application, and at the end of next week, there's going to be lots of application. But, of course, you know application can't happen without knowledge, right? Everything starts with knowledge. Unfortunately, sometimes it stops at knowledge, and of course it shouldn't, but it certainly has to begin with knowledge. Luke 6.38, this is a verse that most false teachers distort. And because I'm not a false teacher, I'm not going to distort it. (laughs) Most false teachers distort, and most sound teachers dodge. Here's the verse, Luke 6.38, give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. That's the Lord Jesus talking to his followers, his disciples. And the verse is fairly straight in what he's saying. But unfortunately, if we get the wrong motivation behind what he's saying, it turns it all into false teaching, motivation for for getting rich and other things. Most of us, really, when we read this verse, we see it through the eyes of false teachers. And my intent is to just clarify that so that we can see it once again through the eyes of the Lord and get the intent that he has for giving us that uh, particular verse. One of the things that you know the false teachers say is that the Lord wants us to be healthy and wealthy without failure. Healthy and wealthy. And they use verses like this to try to prove the point. And what's, what's sad about it, obviously, is it's wrong. But people listen to that. People who love God listen to that. And the reason they listen to it is because they read the scriptures. And then they give a slant that ruins the scriptures. But most of us aren't always catching that. But to be sure, they come close. But coming close, obviously, when it comes to the Word of God, is not good at all. I'm going to give you certain verses just to show you that what they say is not far from the truth. For instance, they say that, you know, God is going to give you back a hundredfold of what you give to him. Have you heard that one? Hundredfold. Well, the Scripture says that. I want to give you a couple of verses, and the purpose for for just reading through these verses is so that maybe we can establish some commonality this morning, so that you'll know what I'm thinking as I'm going through these verses, and for the next 45 minutes, we can have kind of a common thought around this topic. We'll begin with Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled and, and with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs eleven twenty four, 
There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. Mark 10, 28 through 30. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And that's real. We have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Peter, why are you thinking like that? This is what you should do, right? See, here's what he says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions in the age to come, and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter says, we've left everything. Essentially, he is saying, Lord, we have given everything, everything to follow you. And Jesus essentially says, yes, but you will receive back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. See, that's not so far from what false teachers say, but once again, motivation is very important. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, which is a verse we'll look at next week. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, 10. Now he, he being God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Can you see what they all have in common? We just read them. What they all have in common is that the Lord responds to a generous heart. And a generous heart is key. And you're going to hear a lot about the heart because that's key. But the Lord motivates us in a way that causes us from the heart to generously do whatever he's called us to do. Not unwillingly, but, but generously and from the heart. That is the kind of teaching, the teaching that the that the uh, prosperity teachers uh, uh, push, that teaching has ruined giving in the church. Ruined it. And next week, I'm going to tell you how. How it's ruined teaching in the church. So, here's the plan. There's four points I want to make. Just four. Two this week and two next week. The first point is uh, the biblical doctrine of tithing. Obviously, you can't handle giving in this age without dealing with tithing. Then the Old Testament example of free will giving, the New Testament example of free will giving, and then the biblical doctrine of free will giving. And, and I call that the theology of giving. I think that handles giving in a broad sweep, and I think it brings out the essence of what giving to the Lord really is all about. So we're going to start with the biblical view of tithing. And there's about five points that I'm going to hit uh, in kind of rapid succession. We'll look at the uh, tithing defined, 
Most of us already know that, but I'm going to say it just so we're on the same sheet of music. Uh, tithing in secular history, tithing before the law of Moses, tithing under the law of Moses, and then tithing in the New Testament. And that should cover the, the broad sweep of tithing. Most of you are familiar with this verse. We just can't talk about tithing without hearing this verse. And some of you might have emotional reactions. Just, just hear the verse. Leave the emotional reactions out because we're going to get cleared up. Malachi 3, 8, 9. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. That's typically where people go when they want to talk about tithing and giving and how uh, you ought to do it, the conviction behind it, basically stirring you up with conviction to give. And here's the secret, right? I'll just let it out right now. There is nowhere in the scriptures where giving is compulsory, or, or let's just say the amount is compulsory. We'll deal with that. And some of you might be thinking, well, it just said it, tithing, it's compulsory. But we're talking about a different type of giving that we'll unveil shortly. <clears throat> so the Greek word, dekate, asar, for tithing, simply means a tenth in terms of percentage. The references to the tithe, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, are the, the bulk of it really is captured in the law. The law of Moses, where the nation Israel was under this system of tithing. Now, the main passages, and we're going to look at them, the main passages are Leviticus 27, uh, verses 30 through 33, and then we're going to look at Numbers chapter uh, 18 and Deuteronomy <clears throat> chapter 12. Not only did tithing occur with the nation Israel, but tithing also occurred in secular countries as well. Tithing was a form of taxation. Tithing existed before Israel. Like when the Lord talked to the nation Israel about tithing, he didn't have to stop and explain to them what it's all about. It was a common practice among many, many nations outside of Israel. Before Israel and after Israel, there was tithing. One, though, that's captured in the scriptures is where under Joseph's leadership, the nation of Egypt, all of the people in anticipation of a famine, they all tied. They all gave actually two-tenths. All of that was brought into the government, and then the government later sold it back so that they could live through um, the, uh, the famine. But other areas in the scriptures deal with some things that took place before and then things that took place after the, uh, the nation Israel. So tithing before the, law of before the law of Moses in the scriptures. With respect to the church, most places begin with Genesis 47.24. Genesis 47, I'm sorry, 14.20. Genesis 14.20 is uh, where Abraham comes back from a battle and he paid tithes to Melchizedek. We'll read about that later on. But 
That's where most people go. Well, see, tithing was not under the law, and so the church should be tithing because, after all, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. <clears throat> well, he did. Melchizedek was king of Salem and uh, priest of righteousness, and Abraham did indeed tithe. And then the other occasion prior to the law is Genesis 28:22, and this has to do with Jacob. The Lord gave Abraham the promise. Abraham to Isaac and then Jacob. Well, the Lord had promised Jacob everything he would do for Jacob. Jacob, fleeing from his son, he awakes and he prays to the Lord and he essentially says to the Lord, if you do this, I will give you a tenth of all that I have. So Jacob was trying to bargain with God to get what God had already promised him. So that's really not a good place to go if you want to tie tithing to the church, right? Don't want to do that. Now, tithing under the Mosaic law. This is where it's all laid out, and this is really where we get the doctrine of tithing. This is where the Israelite fully understands what's expected of them relative to tithing because it's laid out. It's taught to them. So the greatest emphasis on tithing during the times of the Mosaic Law is in Numbers 18, uh, 20 through 21. Its purpose was to provide the Levitical priesthood, the Levites, with substance. The Levites were the servants of God, and God didn't give them any land. Their possession was to be God himself. And so the tithe was brought into the storehouse, which in fact was a literal storehouse, in the temple that would be the livelihood of uh, the Levites. So the Lord, I want to read it, Numbers 18, 20. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. To the sons of Levi, behold... I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. The Lord says, you're not going to work. Your occupation will be me. I'm your possession. However, your livelihood will come from the tithing that I will exact from the nation. And you know what's interesting about the relationship that God had with the Levitical tribe? It was a relationship that God wanted with all of the people in Israel. He wanted them to know that he was their possession. That's why the church is said to be a nation of priests, right? Every one of us in service of the Lord is in that relationship kind of symbolized by the relationship that the Levitical priesthood had with the Lord. Can you imagine the Lord saying to them, I am your possession. I will take care of you through the nation. So under the law of Moses, a tithe was everything from the land. That's the grain from the soil and then fruit from the trees, also the herd and the flock, and it was mandatory. It wasn't an option. It was absolutely mandatory. Judgment came if they didn't uh, supply the tithe. 
So I want to look at a couple of verses, Leviticus 27.30, and if you turn there with me, I want to read that because I want you to hear it like the Israelites heard it uh, through the mouth of, of uh, or the pen of Moses, Leviticus 27, and it's like the last three or four verses in the chapter. Here's what it says, verse 30. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-tenth. I'm sorry, one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of the herd or the flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall, below, shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are what? The commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of whom? Israel on Mount Sinai. So here's the guy. He's tithing from the flock. He has his rod, and he's just counting. And every tenth one belongs to the Lord. It was very specific what the tithing was. Now, all in all, there were three sets of tithes given to the nation over the course of three years. And I want to show you this and how it's set up in Deuteronomy chapter 14. So go there next, Deuteronomy chapter 14, and we're looking at verses 22 through 29. And of course, each of these passages, we can take a, a lot of time just to, uh, to pull out all of the wonderful truths there, uh, but I'm, I'm just letting you know, kind of surveying what's there uh, so we can put it all together. So in, verse four, in chapter 14, beginning at verse 22, you shall surely tie all the produce from, from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of, of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may earn, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. What he's saying is, I'm going to establish a place, and of course we know that place was to become Jerusalem. I will establish a place where you will come and eat the tide. That was a different type. They were to eat it before the Lord. But Jerusalem was pretty far away for some of them. So here's what he says in verse 24. If the distance is so far for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. That's uh, Deuteronomy 14. I'm at verse 24 of chapter uh, 14. Actually, I'm at verse 25 now. Then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So that's a second tithe. They brought it and they ate it in the presence of the Lord. Also, you shall not neglect the Levites 
who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out of all the tide of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your, in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So here you have three elements of tithe. And by the way, I can't find anywhere in the scripture where tithe could be money. And every time I say that, the folks, well, they didn't have money back then. Well, they did, because he said, if the distance is too far, sell the tithe, take the money, bring it to the place, which is Jerusalem, buy the tithe, and then eat it before the Lord. So they did have money. But the Lord tells them what the tithe ought to be, what constituted, if you will, the tithe. When we come to the New Testament... Tithing occurs in the gospel. And one of the verses I want to share is in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. And the reason I'm sharing this is because Jesus is, he is supporting the tithe. Jesus came while the Jews were still under the law, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. So when Jesus walked the earth, the Israelites were still under the Mosaic system of, of, of tithing that's a part of the law. So verse 23 in chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, evil people. And Jesus here, he's talking to them about tithing. And these folks are evil, but <clears throat> they still must tithe. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. What Jesus is saying is, listen, you partial out herbs and you give a tenth of that and you should have done that. But you neglect the weightier things, which they did, justice, mercy, righteousness. They neglected, but they're under the law, and they were still to give the tithe. And you notice he says the provisions of the law, the provisions of law. Tithing is a part of the provisions of the law. The weightier part, he says, might be uh, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but to be sure, they're all provisions of the law. The only other place I know of that... Tithing is mentioned in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to read that. If you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 4 through 10. Most times when people appeal to this, they say, well, look, it's in the New Testament, and it's talking about how Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. This is a wonderful part of Scripture where the Lord where God is elevating the Lord Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews is showing that Jesus is superior to everything. And in this particular area, he's talking about how the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. And it's wonderful the way he lays it out, beginning in verse 1, chapter 7. 
For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was, as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment, here we go, in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. In other words, Abraham is giving a tithe to Melchizedek. The lesser blesses the greater. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, moral, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so, and so to speak, though Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. Simply put, Abraham paid tithe, and usually the lesser pays tithe to the greater. Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. Aaron was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid, and so the scripture says Aaron, in essence, paid tithe to Melchizedek. Therefore, the Aaronic priesthood is no way near superior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And listen, that's tithing. It was a taxation that the Lord put the nation of Israel under, God being the governor, the Levites being his servants, they paid taxes for the good of the country. Now, in, in Malachi, that place where they go there are six oracles in Malachi, and most people only appeal to the one. Will a man rob God? But Malachi consists really of six oracles, each of which is Israel asking a question and God answering the question. So really, there's nowhere that I can think of in the scriptures where you're going to find tithing to be a part of New Testament church teaching. In fact, James, Paul, Peter, none of the, the New Testament writers of the epistles, none of them taught the church to tithe. You can't go, and they taught the church. The church didn't know but what they taught them. And they never taught them to give based on a tithe. But they taught them to give. And we'll look at more of that next week. Now, there are obviously principles that you can glean from tithe, just like you can from any portion of the Word of God, because the Word of God expresses to us always something about God, the nature of God, some of the things that the Lord would have us to, to think about Him. 
So it's not a waste, obviously, because it's in the Word of God. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good purpose. So we're not eliminating the, 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 the importance of the tithe, just putting it in its right perspective. So then we get it, right? The, the, uh, so in conclusion, right, you have a theocracy and you have people paying into that government. And every one of us, every one of you and me, we do the very same thing April 15th. Every one of us pays taxes. In fact, Paul appeals to this in Romans chapter 13. Like, like the last time I preached, we talked about how God mediates his rule through rulers in the earth. Whether they're good or bad, the authority that they have comes from God, and God mediates his rule. And so here's, here's a verse that I believe is appropriate in looking at the, the issue of paying taxes and then the governing officials living off of those taxes and then they themselves paying taxes from what they get. Romans 13, 5 through 7. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to, the, to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. To t tax to whom taxes due, or revenue to whom revenue is due. Custom to whom custom, fair to whom fair, honor to whom honor. And once again, you might say, well, that's, we have wicked and evil rulers for the most part. Well, when the recipients of this letter read that, the recipients, first of all, were the Romans, the church at Rome. And who was their king? Nero. Nero is, is sinister, right? Or was. He's not with us anymore. But he... <laughs> He is where he ought to be. But, but Nero was really sinister. I mean, cruel to the Christians. And can you imagine how the Christians might have just, just revolt, well, maybe felt a distaste? Because he is saying, this is what you do. Now, before I leave this topic of tithing and, and quickly go to the next topic, I want to say some things that I believe are very important because I want to introduce some cautions and then I want to talk about um, some commendable points regarding tithing. First, a caution. Everyone who teaches that the church should tithe is not a false teacher. There are really neat people I've learned from who know tons more than I know, and they teach that the church should tithe. So they're not all false teachers. In fact, uh, last week we started talking about false teachers in the Sunday school class, and we started to outline some of what, what, what uh, describes, if you will, a false teacher. And of course, we're not going to get into that now. But suffice it to say that teaching tithing doesn't automatically render one a false teacher. Not at all. Also, those who tithe are often acting in obedience to what they believe the Lord wants them to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
The scripture says anything that does not come from faith is sin. And if, if prior to learning, you understand that that's what you ought to do, then you should do that. When the learning comes, you make an adjustment. That's all of us. That's what we do continuously, and we'll do that until we die because we'll never exhaust the teachings in the scriptures. Tithing actually causes some people to increase what they give. And tithing actually causes some people to decrease what they give. And that's left up to them, as you will see next week. Tithing sometimes helps with consistency and discipline in giving. Without the tithe, maybe it's, it's more erratic, inconsistent. With the tithe, it's stabilized. You have a system of giving um, that's reliable. But at the end of the day, tithing is not God's standard for giving for Christians. So, if the church is not to tithe, what governs how we are to give? So we're going to cover that next week. But we're not done yet. Just hang on. We're not done yet. We're going to cover that next week. However, I think you're going to begin to see a little of it as we look at the next topic, which is free will giving, the Old Testament example of free will giving. Now, I can define, I think we all know, right? I can give the definition of free will, um, but we all know. When you hear free will, we all know what it means. But I'm going to give you the definition anyway because there's certain nuances there that I want you to get. So the, the Hebrew word is nadabwa, right, for tithe. I'm sorry, for uh, free, free will giving. So the verb form is nodab, free will giving, free will offering. The, the verb means to incite, to impel, to impel one's self, to be willing, to do freely, to give freely. It has the, the sense of not being compelled. And that's what I want us to get, not being compelled except by yourself. Because to be sure, we are to give. There's nothing in the Scriptures that says, actually, there's a lot in the Scriptures that says we should be giving people. And remember, we imitate God. We resemble Him in the act of giving. However, when it comes to free will, it's not compelled. You're compelling yourself to give. And you must compel yourself to give. It isn't going to be automatic in a heart that you give. I guarantee you, for some of you, it's grown to that point where you love giving. You understand what is all involved in giving and the worshipful attitude toward the Lord. But I want to give you an example of how the word is used, how free will is used in Judges chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Then Deborah and Barak the son of Abinoam, saying on, the, on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered. Praise God, or bless God. And then another version, the ESV version, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Free will giving. The Lord, even in the sacrificial system, had sacrifices that were mandatory. 
They were mandatory to be brought on a routine basis, and they were mandatory to be brought when people sinned. And also, he gave sacrifices that were free will. No mandatory, uh, uh, no obligation, if you will, attached to the giving. But then, there's also giving of finances, giving of money, giving of, of, uh, of valuable possessions. And for that, we're going to look at what I believe is the ultimate example of free will giving in all of the scriptures. We're going to begin with Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 4. All kinds of items you're going to see, valuable items, all forms of wealth. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 4. And this should be on the screen, I believe. Okay, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution from me. Raise a contribution from me. This, this is not going to the Levites. This is a contribution for God himself. Raise a contribution to me. From every man, watch this, whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold and silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet, etc., etc., etc. The Lord takes ten chapters to tell Moses how to build this tabernacle and what's needed to build the tabernacle. And then finally, Moses walks out to the people as if I'm, as if I'm walking out to you. I am Moses, and I'm going to relate to you what God said, right? Because he wants an offering. So here's what I'm going to say. Exodus chapter 35, verses 3, uh, I'm sorry, 4 through 6. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet. What did you notice about that? Moses said, exactly what God said. Moses didn't compel the people. Moses didn't give people reasons to give. Moses didn't talk about the goodness of God and how if you love the Lord, you'll give. He didn't talk. Moses went and said to the people exactly what God said. Now, you know, in, in the last sermon, I talked about how when Moses didn't do that, the Lord killed him up on the mountain, because he didn't show the Lord holy. Well, in this place right here, he showed the Lord holy, because he walked out and he only said what God wanted. Listen, was it important to have the tabernacle built? Yes. Was Moses pressed to make sure that this thing happened? Yes. Did Moses rely on his own ingenuity? No. He simply trusted God, because Moses understands this one thing. The work of God will never go without the means to get it done at all. I always think this way. If something is suffering and it doesn't have the provisions of God, it might not be of God. He might be saying you need to shift because he never, this is God we're talking about. He, no one will ever outgive God. 
And if he challenges you, as in the case of Moses, to bring about some great happening, like the building of the tabernacle, he will supply all of the means. Now, the final place we want to go is Exodus chapter 35, because I want you to see the response in Exodus chapter 35. This is excellent. We're going to look at, uh, I want to say verse 20 through 22, and then we'll, we'll jump to 29. So now Moses has spoken, the people are giving, and here we get to see what the results are. Beginning in verse 20, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence, everyone whose heart stirred him, and you're going to hear that a lot, everyone whose heart moved them, everyone whose spirit moved them, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then... All whose hearts, here we go again, all who hearts, whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and so forth and so on. They're bringing all this stuff, right? Verse 23, every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet, they brought all of that stuff. And then I want you to jump down to verse 29. The Israelites... All the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done brought a what? A free will offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called, has called by Name Baziel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, and the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmen. So the Lord even gave the people who were to build the tabernacle, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave. Do you know what the results were? Does anyone know what the results were? Did they get enough? What do you think? You think they got enough? So look at verse uh, 5 in chapter 36, and we'll end it here. Chapter 36, verse 5 through 7. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a what? A command. This is the first commandment that Moses gave. And a commandment is to be followed. Here's the commandment. Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus, the people were restrained from bringing any more. Listen, that's not just Old Testament happening. God is still the God of the universe. He still works. He still moves the heart. He still gets his work accomplished. He does that. And you see the results. Here at Genesis Community, all we're being asked to do by God is to follow his word, 
live according to his precepts, love him enough to learn of him consistently, and then be moved by him to do what our heart's desire is to do in service to him. So we've looked at two giving systems in the Old Testament, and they're stark contrast. The one is mandatory. The other emanates from the heart. One is compulsory. The other is left up to the individual. And both glorify God when it's done the proper way. Giving is the essence of the relationship that we have with God. That's why I started this with that verse from Ephesians, because Christ gave. If you take away the concept of giving, none of us has a relationship with God. The relationship begins with God giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave, and we became the recipients of the best gift he could ever give. He gave of his best for us because he loves us. Free will giving is the giving that God loves. It's the giving that most resembles the kind of giving that God gave. How many of us can pay back God for his gift? The scripture says, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Our God gave. And so as we resemble him, as we mimic God, giving ought to be a part of the essence of just our Christian life. It ought to be like the core of our functioning as Christians. And we'll talk about the content of giving next week, but to be sure, that's how giving ought to be done. We who love God, we ought to be the examples of giving, not the world, because the world can't. We're able to do it because God indwells us through the Spirit and is constantly working in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. That's not for the world, that's for us. And so we ought to be the ones who are real examples of God in this act of giving. The Bible says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why is that? Right? Why is it? We all know that verse, but why is it more blessed to give than it is to receive? How has false teaching really corrupted giving in the church? If tithing is not the way to give, what is the way to give? We're going to do that next week, and we're going to do it well by God's grace. All righty? Praise God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.